This is your host, Stuart McIntosh, and welcome to episode five of 3030 Vision, a podcast answering the current economic questions facing us today. In this month's episode, we're joined by G30 member Jason Furman. Jason is a professor of the practice of economic policy at Harvard University and a leading economic voice on the economy of the United States. He's frequently quoted on the US and international macroeconomics, fiscal policy, labor markets, and more. From 2013 to 2017, he served as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors at the White House, where he was a top economic advisor to then-President Obama. We're pleased to have Jason with us today to discuss the current U.S. economic outlook. Please note the views expressed in this podcast episode are those of the featured guest only, and do not represent the views of the G30, its members, or their respective institutions. Uh, thank you for listening. Let's get on with it. Well, Jason, it's lovely to see you on 3030 Vision. It's a pleasure to have you. I know you're very busy. Uh, it's, it's an honor indeed to, to get someone of your stature to talk to us about the US economy and other dynamics uh, before us. So welcome. Great to be here. Well, thank you, Jason. And I thought I would just dive straight in and, and ask you about your general take on the US economy. I mean, not long ago, a number of former policymakers and practicing economists were warning of a long period of fighting inflation, uh, citing a need for significantly increased unemployment, for instance, to lower the rate back down towards two. Now the outlook seems to have brightened. When I look at my NABE colleagues, for instance, the forecasters there, now a majority of them surprisingly view uh, it as being possible that we'll hit a soft landing. So how would you characterize the economy today? Will the Federal Reserve and President Biden achieve that soft landing? Might we even get what Paul Krugman called uh, an immaculate disinflation scenario? So the latest news is just really quite good almost across the board. So I'm feeling a bit more cheerful about the U.S. economy, but we're still not there yet. And there's a lot of reason to think that the last mile um, could be the hardest. Uh, why don't I do the good news first, and then I can come back to where I remain um, worried. You know, first, the headline inflation rate has come down really dramatically, depending on sort of what measure you use and what time period, something like a 9% rate to a 3% rate. So you have a six percentage point decline in inflation. Some of that um, was very much predictable and predicted because headline inflation was boosted a lot by a rise in oil prices last year. Um, now you have a decline in oil prices, at least over the last year you have. And so if you look at core inflation, instead of the six percentage point of improvement you have for headline, you have a two percentage point um, improvement for core. That itself is a pretty large improvement. And it's happened even while the unemployment rate has stayed almost exactly at three and a half percent for a year and a half now, just an amazing period of stability 
um, in the labor market. Um, so what's happened? Why have you had that improvement in core inflation above and beyond the volatility um, in oil? Um, part of it is we have had some immaculate loosening in labor markets. Um, the traditional thing is to look at the unemployment rate as a measure of the labor market tightness. But there's a lot of evidence in theory that says you should look more broadly. You should look at things like job openings, at quits. Um, the quits rate is 2.3% in July. That's now back to where it was prior to COVID. Um, job openings have steadily fallen, even while the unemployment rate has not risen. And so you look at the totality of a labor the labor market, and it looks like it has actually loosened, but loosened in a pleasant way of this fewer employers advertising job openings rather than actually firing workers and causing um, unemployment. And that's part of what's gone on. Now, the question is, how far can it go? And I get nervous that just like a year ago, inflation looked even worse than it was because of the bad luck we were going through, that right now it might look a little bit better than it is because of the good luck we're going through. Um, you continue to see wage growth that is running about two percentage points faster than it was um, prior to COVID. You continue to see some parts of inflation that might get worse on things like medical costs. And so overall, I think it's possible that our underlying inflation rate is in the three to three and a half percent range, which um, I don't think for anyone is tolerable. And that bringing that down may not have the benefit of the same type of good luck that we've had so far. So I'm nervous about how we get that last mile out. I think de declarations of victory are vastly premature, but uh, you know we're certainly doing it a bit better than I could have hoped. Well, when you've, you've just clearly described how the economy has been shifting and, and remaining remarkably strong while inflation falls. Can I take you back to your concerns earlier in when we were when we were coming out of COVID and there was big stimulate stimulus being being planned and then executed by the Biden administration? I know you were concerned, as were others like Larry Summers, that this was too much, that this was this was goosing the system, and that we would have a terrible outcome. We didn't we didn't get that terrible outcome. What were the triggers of your reassessment of that, or do you still view that that that, that uh, stimulus as being too large and and being uh, counterproductive and and destructive? Yeah, uh, to some degree, one's judgment of this should depend on how it works out. Um, I think of this as we surged a massive number of troops overseas; they fought and won some critical battles, but now we need to get them home safely. And maybe half of them, two-thirds of them are home safely, but there's still a bunch of troops that are overseas. And if we get them home safely, we'll celebrate and think it was a great war plan. Um, and if we don't, we'll think, oh, wait, maybe we sent too many soldiers. Uh, why, why did we do it that way? And so to some degree, I think it is still too soon um, to tell. Um, even if it works out fine, you know, you don't always want to judge things 100% based on how they turned out. You might have taken a risk gotten lucky. But if you had to, to do over again, would you want to do $5 trillion of stimulus in this circumstance? My guess is most policymakers would be happy um, to do less in these circumstances. Um, and there's still some side effects. Um, real, real wages in the United States are about 3 to 5% below the trend they were on prior to COVID. 
you know, for a family, that's a lot of money. That's um, a couple thousand dollars uh, less of earnings than they would have had. Now, we don't know if that would be better or worse absent this response. But, you know, in my heart of hearts, I think we ignited a lot of inflation and it shows up in prices, usually before it shows up in wages. And so um, it has taken a hole. So um, do I feel a little bit less burning passion about we did too much um, than I might have felt a few years ago? Um, probably, but I think it's too soon to say the debate is fully settled. Um, there's still been some downsides of this. And look, we've seen countries that did a smaller response um, and had a rapid recovery. I mean, I think most of the recovery, it's pretty clear when you look across economies, was related to the reopening of the economy, um, not on the fiscal. You know, there's a bunch of other on the reassessment question of more technical economic things, uh, questions like, um, you know, inflation expectations matter quite a lot in our models. And we don't know how to measure them and which expectations to look at. Um, during this episode, short run expectations went up quite a lot while long-run expectations stayed very well anchored and people really believed the central banks were going to do them, you know, the relative weight and importance of those two measures, you know, I have a little bit more fondness and respect for the importance of long-term inflation expectations than I might have had um, going into this. Thank you. Well, maybe I can uh, link my next question for you to, 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 to the issues around whether or not inflation is still still outpacing wage growth uh, to some degree in these issues of lag that that, that you that you uh, touched upon i mean one of the struggles i i imagine at least that and frustrations of the administration at the moment is that the public perception of the state of the economy doesn't appear to match your assessment of how good it is at the moment and how do we overcome that disconnect and maybe why is that the case? Why, why, why is this? When you ask people, how do how do you see the the state of the economy? It seems to be much more negative than the the reality that you or I might see as economists viewing the figures. Yeah, so I don't know the exact answer to that, but I have um, three speculations. The first is that the job growth has been less positive for public perception than it normally would be. Um, in the wake of the financial crisis, when the unemployment was 10% and you got a job, you were thrilled out of your mind. Now, in 2021, you never had that big a setback in your living standards because of all the transfers from the government. And so getting a job was less thrilling. Plus, there were tons of job openings, so it was going to be easier to get one. And so you don't get the same boost from the employment gains that you would have gotten in the past. Um, the second is, and this is really just speculation, um, but that pe policymakers are obsessed with inflation, the rate of change of prices. I think people may think in terms of price levels. So just to illustrate that, let's say the cost of a gallon of milk jumps up from $3 to $4. That's a huge amount of inflation. People are really upset about it. Now let's say the Fed gets inflation back to two. So the milk over the next year goes from $4 to $4.08. The policy makers might say, look, we achieved our goal, 2% inflation. People might say, what are you talking about? You know, the price of milk was four, which was crazy high. And now it's, if anything, it's gotten more higher. It's gotten to, you know, $4.08. And so if you're not paying attention to prices, maybe that doesn't matter. But once it gets your attention, that jump from three to four, 
you just remain mad about the level of prices um, staying high. And so I wonder if that's part of what's going on. And that says, you know, it's going to be a problem because nothing's going to bring the price of milk down from four um, to three. Um, and then the last thing is, I think there is some reality to all of it, which is just the real wages being below trend. So um, I, I think people aren't totally irrational and mistaken and price illusion. I think they're sort of onto something that their living standards haven't increased as much as they did in the past. Right. I I, I, I think your 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 suspicions are probably correct. I mean, I feel that when I go to the shops myself, box popping the thing for a moment, I see that up, it uptick and it sticks in my mind and annoys me even as i understand as you say that maybe maybe the rate has, has slowed dramatically recently i want i want to maybe turn to a bit more of a wonkish topic but something that i know is important to you and to many other economists and many observers and analysts thinking about uh, what was going on in jackson hole and so on i want to talk to you a little bit about uh, what level the Fed's inflation target ought to be set at. You recently argued at the Wall Street Journal that perhaps the board and the and the chair should carefully but intentionally raise the target over the next couple of years to perhaps between two and three percent instead of sticking with the two percent target. Uh, why would you change the goal now? Why why reconsider it like that? So I'm nervous about this. Um, I think you should be really, really nervous about this. I don't think policymakers should be talking about it much yet. But in the back of my head, my economic analysis is that inflation has costs, but it also has benefits. Um, the costs are all the obvious ones. It's disruptive, inconvenient, and the like. Um, but the benefit is it really facilitates um, the adjustment to economic shocks. It allows lower um, real wages, which means you can maintain employment in the face of a shock, lower wages rather than lowering um, employment. Um, and it lets you have lower real interest rates. Basically, a company can borrow knowing it can raise prices, makes it easier for it to borrow and invest. This can make a really big difference in terms of how severe a um, downturn is. You know, this last one we got out of very quickly because it was a supply problem that ended. But I still haven't forgotten, and I don't think policymakers should forget, the long, slow, painful recovery in the wake of the financial crisis and, and the Eurozone crisis. When you look at how to optimally balance these different considerations, a lot of economists have come to the conclusion that a number like 3% inflation might make more sense than a number like 2 Um, Certainly not a universal view. So blue sky, um, I'm reasonably convinced that a higher inflation target would give us more room to suffer less from recessions. The tricky thing, though, is that um, if you try to change from two to three, um, all of a sudden, all the benefits you got from anchored expectations from credibility risk going away. And that's why I think if you make a shift, you have to do it really carefully. You have to get inflation under control prior to making the shift. We can debate exactly what it means to get it under control, but you have to get it under control. And I would make that shift in the United States by shifting um, from a dual mandate to an emphasis on the inflation mandate as the primary or most important part of the dual mandate. So I do a number of things um, to reassure at the same time. Um, I understand and respect people who say you couldn't pull off um, this type of thing, 
But um, the Fed has actually kept its credibility surprisingly well through this episode, even though inflation went up quite a lot. Its credibility, at least, is measured by long-term inflation expectations, stayed strong throughout. And so um, I'm hopeful that you know if they made sort of a hawkish pivot to a higher inflation target, um, it's something that they could pull off and and would make us more resilient as an economy in the future. So you're... You- in the end, you're not as worried as other people about the de-anchoring of, of consumer expectations in terms of the long-term in, inflation rate, uh, right? I, let me. And, let and, me... and by the way, I mean on that, yeah. I mean, I think there's sort of two things have gone in opposite directions in the last three years. One is I better appreciate the importance of the anchor. I think it's part of how we've gotten inflation down without pain, but also just how sticky that anchor is. It's stickier than I thought it would be. I thought maybe a year or two of really high inflation would change people's long-run forecasts. It did. Um, people just aren't updating that that much. And I think change to a 2 to 3% range rather than a 2% goal, um, I'm not sure that would have some huge nonlinear effect on expectations. How, how, if I add to that just slightly and, and observe, as you know, that most major central banks have the same target. I, th- I don't think it was achieved by some careful uh, modeling, but rather it, it came to be the, the the assumption that you would shoot for two. Uh, what if if the US Federal Reserve makes that kind of shift, does it does it shock the system? Could it have uh, negative effects more broadly because because we are the anchor, the global anchor in so many ways? Yeah, I mean, there have been some differences between central banks um, up until about two years ago, the United States had a symmetric target at two, whereas the ECB had a ceiling at two. And in fact, they ran inflation rates that were about half a point different over the previous 20 years. The United States had consistently higher inflation um, than Europe. Um, The UK has averaged about 3% inflation this century. And, you know, Australia, not as important an economy, although a wonderful country, um, has a two to three percent target. So there have been you know, differences in the way these central banks measure inflation, differences in nuance. Um, I think a four percent inflation target in the United States and a two percent in Europe, that would worry me some. Not not necessarily impossible. Exchange rates can move, but it would worry me some. But if the United States shifted to two to three percent range, that's not that different from the differences uh, they had five years ago. Fair point. Fair point. I want to turn now, in a way, circling back to to the, to the start of our conversation, talking about the the, the nature of the U- U.S. economy and worries or, or concerns or positive dynamics that are underway, and and raise the question of Bidenomics uh, and the extent to which the current new, well, it's not new now, but uh, the, uh, Jake Sullivan's uh, announcement of the industri- new industrial strategy and why that would drive policy going forward, which it clearly is across the administration. Uh, how you gauge that? Do you, do you think that that industrial strategy, which is, a, which is in fact significantly uh, different from previous uh, administrations, will that drive economic growth? Will it increase costs? Does it uh, strain globalization? When you're thinking about it, do you see it as a positive or a negative? Where where do you come down on this 
significant change in administration position on industrial strategy in America. Right. So I like President Biden's policies more than I like the theory of Bidenomics that his administration has advanced to defend them. Um, The way I think about the policies is they are trying to maximize multiple objectives. One of those objectives is GDP growth, but another objective is reducing emissions, and another objective is national security vis-a-vis China. And that there's actually some trade-off between those objectives. I don't mind paying a certain amount for better national security with China. And I think that's the way to think about the U.S. chips policies vis-a-vis China. I don't think we're enriching ourselves and increasing our economic growth with some of the Buy American type provisions we have, but we might be helping our national um, security vis-a-vis China. At least I'm open to that. On climate change, that um, I don't think, if you told me, Jason, go out and figure out how to make GDP growth as high as possible, I wouldn't say do a lot of wind and solar. But if you said, you know, how how do you reduce emissions? I'd say do a lot of wind and solar. And so I think a number of things that the administration are doing is um, basically being willing to pay some economic cost in terms of growth in order to um, achieve an objective. And in many cases, a worthwhile objective. Um, I think in some cases, I have unqualifiedly positive. I think more investment in infrastructure probably is win-win. Um, in other cases, I'm more unqualifiedly negative. Um, when we do buy American around um, stuff related to climate change, I think we're not just hurting our economy, um, but we are also making it more costly to deal with climate change and increasing emissions as a result. So I think there's some things that are you know, unforced errors there. Some things that are great, but at the heart and core of Bidenomics, I see that we're willing to pay a cost to achieve some goals, um, as opposed to the sort of happy story that all good things always go together um, that the administration is telling. Thank you. Thank you. If I may, I might segue from that to to get to the worries around China. And and of course, uh, the news out of China these days, whether it's the real estate collapse, uh, whether it's price declines in housing, uh, whether it's youth unemployment, uh, and so on and so forth, the situation is looking rather grim at the moment. Uh, and I wanted your take on, you know, perhaps melding it to the to the sort of the increased strain between China and the US. How do you see a downturn in China affecting? The U.S. economy is this going to be bad news for the U.S. or can we can we ride it out without huge amounts of adverse effects? Much as I, I know Paul Krugman has argued that that's the case, but I don't know what your view is. In the short run, I think a downturn in the Chinese economy in the current conjuncture might be mildly helpful uh, to the U.S. macro situation. It's putting downward pressure on global commodity prices. It's helping to cool demand, which otherwise is too high. Um, over the medium and long term, I think it's a real negative um, for the U.S. economy, and it's not something that I am particularly, you know, want to see or happy to see. I'd love to see uh, much stronger Chinese growth, and that's because, you know, over the medium and long term, you don't want to think about the demand side of the economy. You want to think about the supply side of the economy. And there's a reason that so much production um, happens in China. Partly it's because of the Chinese market itself is so large. 
Um, but it's also just because there are just enormous, enormous benefits um, to global value chains and to doing certain parts of global value chains at scale. The ability of companies to reproduce um, those benefits and those efficiencies elsewhere, um, you know, have have been limited so far. You know, I'm, I'm happy to see production shifting um, and growing in places like India and Vietnam, but they really can't offer um, some of the infrastructure, the workers, the scale, the other things that China historically has been able to. And so um, I'm like quite worried about the delinkage process. I'm quite worried about the different mindset that you see on the part of policymakers on both sides. I'm quite worried about the fact that Chinese policymakers don't seem um, to be taking, I think, some of the steps that you can take in an economy that's demand deficient, which China clearly is, consumer demand deficient, um, which China clearly is um, right now. And so I think all of this should be a cause, obviously not for panic, um, but, you know, for a medium and long term um, for, for some concern. Well, thank you, Jason. That was an excellent discussion. And I appreciate you taking time to give us your perspectives, not just on the U.S. economy, but also you, how you see the Chinese uh, recession playing out uh, globally. Uh, it's been a pleasure. We appreciate your time very much. Thank you for joining us on 3030 Vision. And we will continue to read your commentaries on Twitter and in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in with us today. If you'd enjoyed this episode of 3030 Vision, please be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Stuart McIntosh. This podcast was brought to you by the Group of 30 and produced by Desiree Maruka. Show music is composed and performed by Michael Janicki. For more information about the G30's work, visit group30.org and follow us on Twitter at Group of 30.